Welcome. Glad you're here with us today. What you doing? Hey, did you see this stage? Is this cool? Is this the coolest stage you've ever seen in your life? This is the vision of Megan Perkins and the work of Megan and Jonathan Perkins. Jonathan did all the electrical stuff up here, so that's a little scary, but good, you know? He's not an electrician, but he's, they're all on. This is cool. So that's cool. Thanks for doing that, guys. We good? All right. So today, we are diving into a new series for the Advent season. Then after the holidays, we'll get back into the Sermon on the Mount. But this Advent series is entitled, He Will Be Called. All right? He Will Be Called. So if you have your Bibles, let's open them today to the book of Isaiah. In the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 8 and 9 is where we will be. We'll be skipping around in those two chapters. All right. So how many of you, at some point in your lives, like named another human? From my experience, I'd probably be like a baby. Who? All right. It's a lot of responsibility, isn't it? The whole naming process, what you, what you name your baby, it's, it's very difficult. Uh, we've done it twice, but there's all these kind of rules that nobody ever really tells you about when you're naming a kid. For example, if your spouse or you ever dated anybody with a certain name, that name is off limits now until the end of time, right? If you've ever known anybody that was kind of slightly odd, that name's up. Yeah, you can't name a baby the same name as any pets that you've ever known. Um, you have to kind of consider the initials, what they spell out. You can't spell out anything strange with the initials. So it's hard, but it's rather important, especially when you realize that names have meanings. You have to think through all, you know, first, middle, last names carefully. If you don't, it can go bad. So with Cana, we were considering using Bell as her middle name. Well, at some point we realized Cana Bell said quickly, sounds similar to cannibal, which <laughs> someone who eats people. So we decided that that was not an ideal name. Did Hope tell us? Did Hope point that out? Yeah, can't, Hope was like, that's not a good idea. So you can see how this is a problem. So anyway, in this series, we're going to look at the four names of Jesus. These names, though, we find in the Old Testament prophecy that was given about 700 years before the birth of Jesus. In a season and a time where there was a lot of turmoil and a lot of fear. So let's read Isaiah 8, 21 and 22. It gives us the background into the context surrounding the, this prophetic word about the future birth and the names of Jesus. Okay, so Isaiah 8, 21 and 22 starts, Distressed and hungry, they will roam, the, roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged. <clears throat> and looking up, will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. So, you see what, what's happening here is, at the end of chapter 8, we see the Israelites, and they're, they're crushed under famine. They're crushed under all sorts of problems. And it says earlier in chapter 8 that at this point, they're looking to mediums and spiritualists and intellectuals. And they're trying to find an answer to their problems. And it says that the more they look at the earth, the more distressed and fearful despair and darkness they find. Then chapter 9, 1 starts. And I love it. It says, nevertheless, 
There will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Nevertheless, there's a light that has dawned, it says. It's not a light that we can light ourselves. This passage says the people who've, walking, who've walked in darkness have seen a great light. They haven't generated it. They haven't ignited it. They haven't kindled it. They've seen it. They've discovered it. It's from beyond us. It's God intervening into the situation to bring hope. Yes, things are dark. We keep looking to the earth. We keep looking, and it seems like all deep darkness. Nevertheless, a light is dawned. Okay, so what's this, has to, have, this passage have to do with Christmas? All right, so I'm going to be the one millionth person telling you the true meaning of Christmas, okay? Let's do it. Christmas means, first off, the world's a dark place. Christmas is a message of unparalleled hope, and yet Christmas is also telling you something about the world and about your own heart. Jesus is a light because the world's such a dark place. This says they look to the earth. They see nothing but distress and darkness and fearful gloom. The world has problems, and it knows its problems, and it analyzes them incessantly and understands them extremely well, but cannot find the solution to them. That's why the world's a dark place. The world's looking for someone to come along and say, hey, here, here's the answer. And then our philosophical and our psychological and our sociological problems will be solved through enlightenment. Maybe we need a leader. That's what we need. We need somebody who can rally the forces and set the vision. We need leadership or we need smarter people. We need to go into ourselves. We need to look to the earth. It's this idea that politicians, economists, or philosophers are going to fix it. We've been looking at them for five or six millennia now. Doesn't seem to be getting a lot better. The same issues keep rearing their ugly heads, right? And after a while, you become aware you're surrounded by darkness, and the more you look, the more you realize the world doesn't have the answer for its problems. Bertrand Russell is one of my favorite atheist authors. He died in the 1970s. But he wrote this essay book thing called Why I'm Not a Christian. It's actually very interesting. And here's why. Bertrand Russell was absolutely amazing at explaining the darkness of human life. He refused to let anybody get out from under it. So this is what he says. He says, if there is no God, then consider the logic of your position. And do not try to squirm out of it by singing Christmas carols. If there is no God, then we're an accident. We're chance creatures. We're the result of the accidental collision of molecules. Unfortunately, we have evolved into creatures with self-consciousness. We're aware of ourselves. And because we're aware of ourselves, we feel we're more significant somehow, more noble than rocks and slime, but there's no basis for such a feeling. What Russell's saying is, if there's no God, then you can't trust that feeling inside of you that there's meaning in life. You have to realize not only you, but all of mankind eventually will die. And if there's no God, then it was all pointless. Your life and everybody you know lives a pointless existence. There's no meaning to it at all if there's no God. And sadly, we have evolved and developed a consciousness which demands meaning and value in a universe that offers neither. So the world's answer is, well, if there's no meaning in life, 
Just grab everything you can, right? Go ahead, eat, drink, be merry. Enjoy yourself. Get as much pleasure as you can. Find some joy. But, but at the same time, try to forget the fact that you're insignificant. And there's no meaning beyond what you're, what's in front of you at all. Joy is an illusion. Love is an illusion. Beauty is an illusion. And that may work for a while, but if you're at all honest, it'll keep creeping back into your conscience. So just push it out, deny the reality of your situation, suppress the truth, and try to live like it's not all pointless. One writer said, Let nature be irrational and merciless and impersonal. I will not. I will have mercy. I will act compassionately. By whatever curious chance the universe has produced me, now that I am here, I'm going to live according to human rules, human values. I know the universe will win, but I will go down fighting amidst all this wastefulness. I will make sacrifices. I will be humane. Let the universe be damned. That sounds great, doesn't it? The problem is, it doesn't work. Because where'd you get this notion of being humane and compassionate? Where'd it come from if there's no God? If there's no God, if you really are just a result of accidental collision of molecules, then these notions of compassion and humaneness are just accidental, an accidental collision of atoms inside your skull. It isn't real. The message of Christmas is... The world is a dark place, and the more you look to the world for the solutions, the darker it gets. And unless God has sent his Son into the world, unless God has revealed himself through the Son who he sent into the world, there's no light for the world. Because he alone brings meaning to our lives. He is our hope, our only hope. That's the message of Christmas. You know what that means? It means you can't take Christmas and use it the way the world does. This kind of like, if we just get together in a circle and hold hands and love each other, everything will be all right. You can't do that because it isn't realistic. Christianity is way more realistic than any of the worldly philosophies. Christianity says things are dark. Nevertheless, a light is dawned. Therefore, we have all the hope in the world. Why? Because Jesus was born as a baby and he died for us, and he rose triumphant from the, over the grave. And now he's seated at the right hand of God, the Father, and he's put everything under his feet. And someday we're going to reign and we're going to rule with him. If that's true, then there's an ultimate reality that brings meaning to our life. Then no matter what happens to us, we're secure. We can rest in him. We have a hope. And here's the thing. God doesn't simply bring light into a dark world, he brings it in the most unexpected and unlikely of ways. This makes the message of Christmas even more hopeful. It says here in the, fir- the, f- uh, the very first couple of verses in chapter 9, it says, In the past he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. Here's what he's saying. Galilee was despised, and especially Nazareth, the, the place Jesus grew up and came from. There was this common saying, can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth was a, a podunk, backwater town in a part of the country that was near the land of the Gentiles and was despised by everyone. It wasn't a vacation destination. Okay? It was kind of located between two big cities, so most people just passed through it on the way to where they were going. Have any of you been on like a long road trip? And you pull into one of those towns, one of these towns to get gas, a Slurpee, a corn dog, use the bathrooms, clean the bugs off your windshield, 
and get out of there as fast as you can. Right? One of those towns. That's Nazareth. Gas station corn dogs. That's what they have. Nothing good can happen there. So maybe there's some of you that are embarrassed to live in a small town. Maybe there are some young folks here that think, I can't wait to move to where somewhere, somewhere where things are happening. Because we know how things work, right? Great things don't happen in little towns. Great thoughts aren't thought in small towns. Great events don't occur. Great people don't live there. Can I tell you? That's how the world thinks. That's not true. This is a little sidebar. If you're a young person here today, can I encourage you? We need just as many smart, passionate people ministering in Northeast Ohio as anywhere else. Consider putting down roots here when it's time to do that. I love Ohio. I love Columbiana. There's a place for you here. There's a place for you to use your gifts. The world thinks that they know how things have to happen, but that isn't true. Great thoughts can be thought in a small town. Great things can happen in a small town. End of rant. But God makes sure his son comes as a little baby born to poor parents, born to an unwed mother in in a feed trough in a small town. And the only people invited to his first birthday party are shepherds. Who are the shepherds? The most despised of all the jobs in Israel. So despised that the testimony of shepherds was not admissible as evidence in court. Because the shepherds were considered that shady and unreliable. Nobody respected the shepherds. They're the ones who come to his party. Why does God do this? As Paul said, God chose the foolish foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. That's the message of Christmas. Not only that God brings light into darkness, but God does it in the most unlikely and unexpected ways. Why would he do that? So that every Christmas time, we would know Christmas is, above everything else, a message of hope. Let's read Isaiah 9. Verse 6, the verse that's often used in the Christmas season. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Here's the name of our series. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. Establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Here we see the prophetic titles given to Jesus 700 years before his birth. That he would be called first the Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. These two English words come from two Hebrew words. Pele Yoez. Pele means famous soccer player. Not really. That's a stupid joke. Anyway, Pele means beyond understanding. It means too wonderful for words. So when Isaiah was going to describe the Savior of the world, Jesus, he didn't have the words to describe him. So he used a word that said there's, there's no words great enough to tell you just how awesome he is. He's too wonderful for words. Yoez is the word translated as counselor. It means to advise or consult or to guide. So one day a son will be born, a child will be given to us. His name will be Pele Yoez. He will be a wonderful counselor. He is God in the flesh. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, and yet he knows you, and he cares for you, and understands exactly what you're going through. Therefore, he can be your wonderful counselor. 
I love the way it's described in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. Speaking of Jesus, our high priest, our, our counselor. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says, This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testing we do, yet he did not sin. Our high priest, our savior, our wonderful counselor, Jesus, he's been through what, what all of us are going through. He's been tempted in every way as we were tempted, yet he was without sin. He understands your pain. He understands your hurt. He has experienced life just as you have. That's why verse 16 says, So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. So some of you right now, maybe you're in a time of need. When Jesus came, he came for those who were in need. Jesus says in Luke chapter 5, verse 31, he says, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. So the question is, where are you sick? Where do you hurt? Because truthfully, we're all sick at one point or another. We all battle with weaknesses and vulnerabilities and strongholds and dysfunctions. We live in a dark world. So where are you sick? And we live in such a competitive, individualistic culture that we have a hard time admitting the struggle, right? How are you doing? Well, I can't look weak, so I'm fine. Fine, it's fine, we're fine. Okay, but like, where, where are you sick? How are you really doing? Where are you struggling right now? You know, the holidays, they, they kind of have this way of magnifying things. <clears throat> they make the good things look better, but they make the bad things look worse. The, often, the holidays often magnify our sicknesses. So where are you sick? Could be like many people today, you're depressed. A lot of people right now are what psychologist Adam Grant calls languishing. You aren't motivated to do anything. You wake up every day wondering how you're going to get through the day. And you have no hope that tomorrow's going to be any better. You're in that darkness that Isaiah talked about. You're just simply depressed. Heaviness, this weight, this sense of hopelessness. Others of you, you live in fear, you're always worrying always wondering what's going to happen. Nothing's good enough and things could get worse at any minute. And you just live with this anxiety. Some of you, you're stressed. You're looking at your to-do list and thinking, boy, how am I ever going to get this done? How can I shop for everybody? I've got family coming over. The house has to be perfect. The meals need to be just so. You're just full of anxiety and stress. Some of you, maybe it's more of a financial stress. It's like, oh my gosh, we're just hurting already and we've got to pay all these bills we got Christmas coming up. How are we ever going to do it? Some of you are just lonely, maybe. You see a happy family, and you look on, and you just go, why can't I have that? Why do I have to go to bed alone? Why, can't, why do I have to eat alone? I hate it, you know? Maybe some of you more it's a family sickness. you got some problems in your family, and you just don't want to address them. Instead of being excited about being with family during the holidays, you dread it. You don't want to be there. Maybe somebody's hurt you and you're angry. We're all sick at different points in our life. Acknowledge yours. Answer the question, where are you sick? And remember the good news. Maybe even though all you see right now is darkness, there can be a nevertheless in your story. There's a light that breaks through even in the darkest time. Jesus, our wonderful counselor, 
So let's look at a few moments, for a few moments, at some biblical principles that deal with just how we find healing with this wonderful counselor. Number one, like, any, like with any counselor, you have to be brutally honest with yourself and him and realize that you're sick. Going back to the Beatitudes, the kingdom of God belongs to the poor in spirit. You have to come and say, here's all of it. Here's all the, here's all the junk. Here's all my trash. Here's all my weariness and heavy burdens. Just open and honest. He lets people like that in. In the story of the woman at the well, right? Jesus at one point asked the woman to go get her husband. What does she say? She says, I have no husband. She could have chosen to lie to Jesus. She could have tried to hide her shame and darkness. But she doesn't. She's honest with Jesus. And because she was honest with him, Jesus says, I am the living water. I am what you're searching for. Jesus was able to reveal who he is and who he should be in her life because she was honest with him. In Psalm 55, verse 22, we're told to cast your burdens on the Lord. He will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. To cast means to throw. Like Take your burdens and throw your burdens on the Lord. The second thing is we must learn to listen to the counselor's voice. To listen to Jesus. Listen to God's advice to his disciples in Mark chapter 9. Don't turn there now. You can read the whole story sometimes. But Jesus takes three of his disciples on top of this mountain. And God did this crazy miracle. And God transfigured Jesus. He's like all glowing and shining, shiny. And then um, Moses and Elijah appear on this mountain. You can like imagine these three disciples were like terrified. So they just start talking. They're just like, blah, 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 blah. You know, I've never seen anything like this in my life. Let's build an altar. This is what we need to do. And, and God spoke at that point. You know what he think? And do you, do you think God said what? What do you think God said when he had these three disciples' attention? Here's what God said. Mark 9, 7. It says, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to what he wants to say to you. But now, me, you may say, like, but does how, how does he speak? How does Jesus speak? Well, he speaks in all sorts of different ways. He's a wonderful counselor who speaks. He'll speak to you through his word if you will seek him. He may speak to you today through my words or somebody here at church. He may say something very specific just for you. He may speak to you through someone sitting next to you at the church today. He may speak to you through someone that you work with. He may speak to you on your way home as you're listening to a song. He may speak to you through your daily devotion. He may speak to you through your circumstances. The Holy Spirit who lives inside you may use your conscience or your intuition. If you listen, you can train yourself to hear his voice. In John 10, 27, he said, My sheep, they listen to my voice. We're brutally honest with the counselor. We listen to the counselor's voice. Number three, above all, We must do what the counselor tells us to do. You have to live the way that your counselor tells you to. The thing is, if you're going to follow Jesus, who came in an unexpected way and came in ways that the world considers foolish, if you live in the way that he prescribes, you, you have to expect that you will be considered by the world to be foolish too. We talked about this last week. If you live how Jesus teaches us to live, turning the other cheek, Blessing those who curse you, 
putting the needs of other people ahead of your own, giving to those who ask of us, pouring ourselves out for those in need, what's the world going to say? It's going to say, you're, you're going to have a miserable life. Self-denial and sacrifice and all that stuff it doesn't work, right? Because if there's no meaning to this life, then you grab all the pleasure you can in all the ways that you can, right? Can I just say, don't go the way the world says. Jesus' way may look foolish, but listen, the, the feed trough in which he was born and the garbage heap on which he died are more famous than any of Caesar's or Pharaoh's mansions. People we can't even remember anymore. His foolish way is the way to greatness. He wants you to have an abundant full life, a glorious life. He is for your joy. It says in the next verse in Isaiah, Isaiah 9.3, it says, You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder. In life of an agricultural people, there are two great moments of joy. At the harvest, and when an enemy has been defeated and they're splitting up the plunder. The message of Christmas is, the world's a dark place. Yet the coming of Jesus Christ shows us that nothing and no one is hopeless. Because we have a wonderful counselor. And if you believe it, the more you lean into that and trust in that and say, God is for me. He's my hope. The more you think about what Christmas really is, the dawning of light in a dark world, the more that settles into your heart, then the more joy you will have. Christmas is a message of hope and joy in the world of darkness. Amen? Amen. If the ministry team wants to come on up, I'm going to pray. And after, if you'd like prayer, if the coming of Christmas feels like a dark time for you today, it would be a great day to get some prayer. So let's pray. Lord, you have told us here that there is no more gloom or darkness for those who are in Christ Jesus, who accept the message of Christmas. We pray, Father, for those of us who who know it and believe it, that the truth and the glory of that will dawn on us, it will dawn over us, so the darkness that still clings to some of those areas of our lives will be dispelled. Father, we know that there are some in here who do not know you who are in darkness. Lord, I pray that your light would dawn in their hearts and that the darkness would be dispelled. Jesus, we're just thankful. Thank you that you're our wonderful counselor, that we can cast our burdens on you. Lord, help us to learn to hear your voice and most importantly, to do what you tell us to do, Lord. We just pray all this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen.